Well, last week I introduced us to the Gospel of John as a, a book as a whole, and I titled this series as we begin our study through the Gospel of John called The Known, because John tells us that Jesus Christ came to make God known. And so this morning as we dive into the text in John chapter 1, we're going to look at one of the most profound, theologically rich passages in the entire Bible. And the words are very straightforward. They're simple enough that even children can understand them. But the truths that they encompass are so profound that no human mind can fully fathom and understand them. So turn with me to John chapter 1 as we're introduced to the Word who came to make the Father known. Now obviously making God known is a pretty big responsibility. I mean, that would be an incredible privilege to be the one who comes to make God known. So we would kind of guess that the person, the one making God known, would be a pretty special person in and of themselves, right? Well, John begins his gospel by telling us about the one, this person who would come to make God known. And he gives a very powerful, a very potent description of this individual. The importance of these words, I don't know that I could really overstate to you this morning, the foundation of who this person is from John chapter 1. And they remind us that who matters. That's the sermon title for this morning, who matters. And it's not a question as in who matters, but a statement that who matters. And we understand this concept. I mean, we know that in some tasks, who is performing that task matters and is very important to us. For instance, if you have to have heart surgery, who do you want doing that heart surgery? A heart surgeon, correct? I mean, it's nothing against a podiatrist or a pediatrician or a dentist who are all doctors by schooling and trade and experience. But if you're having heart surgery, you want a heart surgeon to perform that surgery. And truth be told, we want the best one we can find and afford, right? And we want somebody good if it's going to be messing with the old ticker, right? Well, and two, when we need a dentist or a podiatrist or a pediatrician, we want someone who's good in what they do, who's trained and equipped in that. So we understand that in some tasks, who matters? But we also understand that in some situations, who matters? When you fly on a plane, do you want a fully trained, fully experienced pilot? Or a guy who says, man, I've been flying radio control planes for years. And I just passed my first pilot's exam online. I'm ready to go. Well, you may be, but I'm not. You know, give me the experienced guy in that cockpit. You know, it matters uh, in some situations who is leading and who we trust. In matters of affection, who matters? We were in Merritt Island, and uh, we were, I was walking through the, the foyer one week as church had let out, and people are everywhere. And I see, across the foyer there, a woman about my wife's height, curly brown hair, about shoulder length. They billed as my wife, and so I began to walk up behind this person. And I was going to do what husbands will sometimes do as their wives are speaking. Just kind of let them know I was going to walk up and put my hand around her waist and step up and see who she was talking to. You see where this is going, don't you? So as I approached and I was uh, in motion to put my hand around the waist of this person, I heard the voice of this brown-haired lady, not my wife. And realized when I heard the voice very astutely that it wasn't my wife. I was able to pull my arm back and really avoid a very, very awkward situation, but I was in too far to totally not make any contact at all as I brushed up. So I kind of managed to play the old bump. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need to watch where I'm going. 
and played it off to avoid a really embarrassing situation for one of the staff pastors in the foyer of his church. So who matters in issues of affection? Because if you don't get the who right, you're in trouble in two places, all right? So, so who matters in those situations? And this one who came to make God known was very special. He was very unique because not only did this person come to make God known, he was the way, he was the door, he was the bridge that people would be able to come to God and have a relationship with him and be God's children. So in John chapter 1, we meet this man and we see from the beginning that he wasn't just a man, he was a very special man who came to do something that would change lives and that would rewrite the course of history. So John chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is one of the most compact yet power-packed theological statements in all of Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 1. And so I want us to take these statements piece by piece and see what John is telling us about this one who came to make God known. And we need to understand that the word here is Jesus Christ. That's who John is talking about because in John chapter 1 verse 14 he says, "And the word became flesh and dwelt among us." So it's a description of Jesus Christ. And John says in the beginning, does that sound familiar to you? Hopefully it does, because that's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which describes God creating the heavens and the earth and the universe and everything that has been created. And so John, in the opening three words of his book, tells us about this person. Uh, He ties Jesus Christ to the beginning of creation by saying that Jesus was in existence before creation. You see, creation marks the beginning of time, and John tells us that Jesus existed before the beginning of time. And we know that because of the use of the word was. He says, in the beginning was the word. And that is in the imperfect tense, which is translated, in the beginning was continuing the word. So if you go back to the beginning and then continue past it, the word was there. So if something was continuing or going on infinitely beyond the the creation of the world which marks the beginning of time, that thing is said to be pre-existent. And that's exactly what John is saying about Jesus Christ, that he is pre-existent. He existed before time, before creation. And, And we know this because there is a different Greek word that's used on the word was to describe something that wasn't there at all, period, didn't even exist, and then did exist. So, for instance, if you say, well, the world was created on day four, as Scripture teaches, and there, that, that is used, and we'll see that, it's a different word for was. It's a word that described there was nothing, and then there was something. That's not the word used to describe Jesus Christ here. It says the word was existing. So particularly the Jewish audience that's hearing this is going to say, wait a second, it sounds like this word is like God because God has always existed. God is pre-existent. And that's who, they knew that God was pre-existent. And so now John introduces this new person and they'd go, well, if I didn't know better, I'd think he sounds a whole lot like God because God has always existed. Well, John goes on and just to further clarify, he says, and the word was with God. 
Now, the with God here is translated continually toward God, and it gives the picture of two intelligent beings face-to-face having an intelligent discourse. They're on an equal plane having conversation and relationship with themselves. And so John says the word always was with God in existence, preexistent, and that whole time that he was with God, they were in face-to-face relationship. They had communion and relationship one with another. And so again, the person hearing this would say, wow, this word that John's talking about sounds like he's always existed like God does. And and if he's having a relationship and and is in relationship with God this whole time, seems like he would almost try to be say that he's on the same plane. He's equal to God, but that can't be right because no man, no person is like God. I mean, he's altogether different from who we are. And that's not just Jewish thought. That was Greek thought. I mean, you studied the Greek gods and the gods were here and the people were here and there's, you know, we're very different people, persons, and God. And yet John seems to be describing this person, this word person, who seems a whole lot like God. So to clear up any uncertainty, John says, and the word was God. The word was God. You don't get any more direct than that statement. John states with no ambiguity, no uncertainty, that the word, Jesus Christ, is God. So every word, every tense, every description that John uses in this sentence states that Jesus Christ is the same as God in essence, in character, and in nature. He is God. John sets that foundation right off the bat. Now some groups will try to argue and tell you that because there's not a definite article where it says, and the word was God, there's no definite article to say the word was the God, that it should be translated, and they have Bibles that are translated and say that Jesus was a God because there's no definite article. But I want you to understand one thing about Greek grammar, a couple things about Greek grammar. One here is the word is the subject of this sentence. When you go back, the word was this, the word was that, the word was that. The definite article is on the word who is the subject. At this point in the sentence, it is a descriptor of the word. It's like saying the word was blank and you fill it in. Lovely, joyful, the word was, you know, whatever you wanted to describe it. And John picks a word to say the word was, what does he say it was? God. I mean, if you're going to make an analogy, if you're going to make a comparison and say it's something, the word he uses is God. And he's referring back to the same God. He's referring back to where it says, and the word was with God. It's the same God that had the definite article there. So he's saying, yes, the word was God. And here's the interesting thing. These groups will tell you, well, it doesn't have the definite article, meaning Jesus was a God. But there are four other references, four other references in John chapter 1 alone that use the word God that don't have the definite article. And you know what the Bibles of those groups have? They have Jesus was a God in John chapter 1, but when they get down to John chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 18, they interpret, they translate their own Bibles that say God, as in God the Father, the one true God, in those places, even though those four references do not have the definite article as well. You see that inconsistency? Manipulating the text to... to, set their viewpoint. Jesus Christ is the same as God in character, essence, and nature. There is no doubt about that fact. The Bible's teaching on this is clear and unmistakable. 
And I want to tell you, church, this is one of those doctrinal hills that we will die on. We will take a stand on this issue. And if someone is contrary to this view, then that person is in or is out of line and out of step with what the Bible clearly teaches. This is a big deal for us as a church, but should be for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. The doctrine that's here is called the deity of Christ. And a deity is a God. The question is, what kind of God? Because we talk about the one true God, the capital G God. You see throughout Scripture, the one true God. But there's also little g gods, false gods, false idols that people follow after. So the question is, what kind of God is Jesus Christ? Is he the big G God or a little g God? He is the big G God, the one true God. And we stand on that truth. And let me tell you, if you get that wrong, then everything else is wrong. That's the foundation of who he is and what he did to come. And John lays this foundation in John chapter 1, verse 1, because everything else he's going to highlight in his gospel points back to and underscores and proves this fact that he is setting down as fact right here. And we've got to build off of that foundation. Because it's like this, you can't do math. You're not going to be a mathematician if you work off of the assumption that 2 plus 2 is 6. It's not going to work for you. Don't try to balance your checkbook thinking 2 plus 2 is 6. Not going to work out. We've got to know and understand that Jesus Christ is God. And we'll see that as we go through the study of the Gospel of John. So what this means for us is if you, see, if you find a teacher or a preacher who claims something different, the Bible doesn't mince words in telling you to get away from that person and not listen to any of their teachings because their foundation is wrong. In 2 John, verse 10, written by, who do you think? 2 John, yeah, the same guy that we're looking at here. Uh, the Apostle John says about false teachers who deny these fundamental, non-negotiable doctrines of faith. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. He doesn't pull any punches on that. So if somebody knocks at your door and wants to come in and talk to you about spiritual truths and spiritual things, cut to the chase. You can shorten that conversation tremendously by asking this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the same as God in essence, character, and nature? And if they cannot state emphatically without batting an eye or without stammering, well, 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 yes, but, and then trying to, to give you some reason or excuse to work around it, then don't entertain them. That conversation is over because you're not talking about the same things. And let me tell you this. If you decide to engage them, then you better be ready. And you better have done your homework on the deity of Christ and other core key doctrines to who you are. Because I'm going to tell you something. They will be well trained. They are well versed in their viewpoints and in their scriptures that quote unquote support their interpretation, their view of scripture and of things about God and of spiritual issues. They will use terms. They will use words. They will say things that sound familiar to your ears, but they mean something totally and completely different. Friends, we have got to get this right, and we've got to go to God's Word, and we've got to know why we believe what we believe and where God's Word teaches it. I read and saw where the, the largest denomination being targeted by, by, by different cults and different uh, false religions and groups that are out there trying to proselytize and convert, you know the largest target denomination? Baptist. 
You know why? Because they found we're weak. It's going to put it simple. They found we're, we don't know what we believe. We're very susceptible, very open uh, to these things. And they come in, they engage, it sounds good, and we're led astray by these false teachers and these false prophets. But the foundation starts right here with who Jesus Christ is. Because if we get that wrong, everything else is going to be off as we go through the gospel and as we go through our lives. John clearly states that the word, Jesus, is God. And he perfectly phrased this sentence to preserve Jesus' separate identity. Because here's the thing, Jesus was a separate person from God. Because we see where the word was with God, we go, well, that sounds like two persons. There's the word and then there's God. There are two persons. Jesus Christ was a separate person from God, but he is the same as God in his essence, character, and nature. And so John states this perfectly to highlight Jesus' separate identity as a person, but his sameness with God in every other aspect of who he is. And then John goes on and tells us more about this word, this one who is God. He says there in verse 3, all things were made through him. We're still talking about the word here. And without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, the, the phrase there, not anything made, literally means not even one thing. So not even one thing that exists that Jesus, the word, didn't create. And there are other scriptures uh, in, the, in the Bible that support this and also teach and go beyond to say that Jesus actively sustains our life. Like this instant, Jesus is personally and intimately focused on keeping you alive. Your heart beating, your lungs fun- functioning. I mean, just the thought, if Jesus were to ever get distracted and begin daydreaming, we're done. You know, we're done. You guys ever drive somewhere and you get home and go, man, I don't remember driving here. I just kind of went through the motions. Man, if Jesus ever does that, we're done. We're finished because he is actively sustaining our lives. And I want to illustrate this incredible creative power of Jesus Christ in both the large and the small. Did some research this week and just kind of checking this out to to be able to share some of these things with you. And astronomers estimate that there are 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy and that there are millions and millions of galaxies besides the Milky Way. 100,000 million. Are you kidding me? What kind of a number is that? For a description. That's like like something my kids would say. Oh, yeah, well, I'm that too. 100,000 million. Yeah. Are you... Well, that's not a number that we can think of. Well, mathematicians take this number, and they try and help us understand the concept. So they say that would be like saying it's 10 to the 22nd or 10 to the 24th power. You know what that is? That's the number 10 with 22 to 24 zeros behind it. You can't wrap your brain around that number. I don't care who you are and what kind of concept. That is so beyond what we can fathom as far as the number of stars in the universe. And you know what? Jesus Christ made every one of them. He can tell you the number. He can communicate the number. He made every single one of them. But not only is he the creator on the grand scale, he's also the creator and the sustainer on the microscopic scale. Again, I I was doing some research. I went to the internet and Googled the smallest living organism. 
wasted about 30 minutes of my life going through that because here's what I discovered. You all know this. There's discussion over what, what is the definition of life. What does it mean to be alive and what's living, what is living and what's not because that's important because of what we measure as far as size. Some people say, well, this is the smallest living thing. And people say, well, that's not really alive because it doesn't have whatever going on. But I came across this one site that said this. Based on the definition of life, it's quite possible that we haven't even discovered the smallest living organism. We think we got it together. We think we know everything. and say, well, we may not even know the smallest living thing. Well, here's what I can tell you. Whatever it is, molecule, microorganism, minuscule thing to a point X, 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 whatever size of it, Jesus Christ created it, and he is sustaining it, keeping it alive, whatever definition of life you want to give it. So we say, what does this mean? Okay, grand scale, small scale, what's it mean? Here's what it means. It means you can trust God with everything in your life, big and small. You can trust him. He knows about it. He knows every detail and every situation of it. And he loves you, and he cares about you, and he cares that you're dealing with it, no matter how big or how small. Charles Steinmetz, people in his day said, was a mechanical genius. He was a good friend of Henry Ford. People said that Steinmetz could build a motor in his mind, and if it broke, he could fix it in his mind. A genius. Well, one day, Henry Ford's assembly line broke down as he was uh, producing automobiles, and so he called Steinmetz and said, hey, can you come in and look at this? Steinmetz did. He came in, looked at some plans, talked to some people, went over, uh, tinkered around in an area for a few minutes, went back over, flipped the switch. Everything was running perfectly. A couple of days later, Henry Ford gets a bill for $10,000. So he sent Charlie a little note and said, Charlie, don't you think your bill's a little high for just a little bit of tinkering? Steinmetz sent a revised bill that said, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. <laughs> Jesus knows what needs to be done in your life to keep you in perfect working condition. He knows what you need, when you need it, where you need it. And he desires, he wants you to walk in close relationship with himself so that when that need evidences itself, he can respond to it. He can minister, he can care, he can nurture, he can provide for that need, whatever it is. And we know that he wants to have that relationship with us because of what these next verses say. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here John tells us that Jesus is life. And the word used here is used throughout John's gospel to refer to spiritual, not biological life. And again, the context here means that, that the word has life within himself. It wasn't that he was not alive and God made him alive. It says when he was life, it means he has always had life and been alive in and of himself. And then the same word construction here is in verse 1 where it says the word was God. It says the life was the light of all men. So Jesus is also light. So he is life and he is light. And think about how interconnected those two things are. I mean, except for a few uh, crevice and cave-dwelling and bottom-of-the-sea-dwelling uh, creatures, everything needs light to live, does it not? I mean, I would even posit that those things I just mentioned in the caves and the bottom of the sea, they need light to produce fruit, food that they eat in their darkness. So everything needs light to live. 
And the Bible says that Jesus has life in himself. And he brought that life into spiritual darkness, into the spiritual death of the world, and that the life that was in him shone in the darkness. And when you're in darkness, what do you do when you see a sliver of light? You begin to move toward. You ever taken those cave tours where they get in and they click the lights off? That's an eerie thing, isn't it? You're like, okay, okay, turn the light back on, turn it on, quick, 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 quick. I can't stand it. You know, you're going, I can't see my hand. And when you're in a dark room and, and there's a sliver of light under the door or through a window, we move to that light. And that's what happened as Jesus Christ came into the world with spiritual life within himself. People saw that light and God began to work in their heart and say, I want that light. And people were drawn to the light of Jesus Christ. But John highlights here one of the byproducts of a light coming on and something that we'll see throughout the Gospel of John. What happens when you first flip a light on when you've been in darkness? Some of your kids or your grandkids went back to school this week, and there were some parents who took great joy walking in the bedroom and going, Come on, time to get up for school! And the kids go, I can't see! Turn the light off! I mean, it hurts when the light comes on. We kind of cower from it, and we recoil like, ah, until we adjust to it. What do you think happened when the light of Jesus Christ entered into the world, and it exposed men's sin and their rebellion and their disobedience to God? People recoiled away. They didn't want others to see and know their deeds and their sinfulness and their disobedience to God. But you see, the light didn't just recoil and stay away. It came against the light of Jesus Christ and against his life. And it did everything it could to extinguish and put out that light. But you know what John says in verse 5? The darkness has not overcome it. Light repels darkness. And it underscores the fact that the darkness tried to put out the light of Jesus Christ, but it couldn't because he had life within himself. He continued to live even after his physical, earthly death, further underscoring that he was God's son, showing that nothing, no one, no person could put out the light of Jesus Christ or overcome the life that he came to bring. And Jesus promised that if we would believe in him, we could experience this same life within us, that even though we will die, yet will we live in and through him. He offers that life to us. Now, we're wading into some deep waters, and we've waded through some this morning. And if some of you are like me, when you think hard and long about these things, your brain begins to hurt a little bit. And what I don't want to happen is that you get so overwhelmed that you go... Man, I read those first five verses in John. I didn't see any of that stuff. I'm not smart enough to figure this stuff out. I I don't know how how you know and you understand those things. And we kind of get intimidated and go, I don't know if this John thing is going to be for me. Or worse yet, that we say, man, if the whole Bible's like that, I I can't read that. I can't understand those things. I I don't know how to pull that stuff from the Bible that's there. So I don't want it to be something that causes you to cower and pull away from God's Word. So I want to take a couple minutes and give you just some quick challenges and thoughts because I want to encourage you and motivate you to draw more to the Word and to God through His Word instead of being intimidated and fearful and backing away from it. So number one, remember this. God makes Himself known through Jesus. God makes Himself known through Jesus So the thought here is God wants you to know him. He wants you to come to him so God will reveal himself. He will 
teach you about himself if you will just seek after him. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. God wants you to know him. He wants to be in that relationship. That's why Jesus left his face-to-face relationship with God and came to earth so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could know him. So don't be afraid because you know that God wants to know you and he wants to teach you and guide you and help you grow as you seek after him. Secondly, I would encourage you in this. Rest in the greatness of God. Rest in the greatness of God. As Pastor West and I were talking about this week, he's like, man, you can pull a muscle in your brain, you know, thinking about the vastness and the depth of of these hard-to-grasp truths about God. I was like, man, you can. I mean, it, it gets very, very deep to think about how profound these truths are. So when you get to that point, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take a deep breath. Exhale. And then rest securely in this fact. God is expansive. He's great. He is altogether unfathomable. I got it right. I worked on that every day this week. Unfathomable. You can't fathom. You can't understand and grasp everything about God. But know that this vast God, know this, God's got this. God's got this. I don't care what you're facing, what situation, what's going on, God's got this. If he's that great, the kid's saying, took him a week to make the the earth and the stars and the universe, he's still working on us. How many years has it been that God's been working on you? You can trust him and rest in that confidence of knowing, wow, I'm in the hands of an incredible creator. Third, study more not less. Study more, not less. You need to be grounded in God's word and know why you believe about uh, what, what you believe about uh, different issues like God and Jesus and the Bible and, and these other doctrines that are central to your faith. The Baptist faith and message, and I forgot to put on there in your note sheet, the 2000 uh, edition of that. They, they revise our, our Baptist faith and message sometimes to deal with, uh, with things taking place in our culture. There are certain truths and doctrines that begin to work their way in, and so they revise those things to help clarify exactly where we stand on the Bible. So you can see that in the other books there. But I would just encourage you to, to seek God more, not less, uh, if you feel like you don't know enough about him, because God will reveal himself to you. He will teach you and help you grow and you will be amazed. Trust me, you will be amazed at how your understanding and your faith and your vision of how incredibly uh, expansive God is will increase as you dive further and further into God's Word. I see Mike Hathcock over here. I know Mike on I several occasions. We've talked about, you know, growing and knowing and, and understanding God. And Mike said that when he teaches, he learns more that, than he ever does just sitting under someone. And I understand that because when you teach and you dive in, you study these things and begin to teach that to others, you grow your depth, your knowledge, and your understanding. So, so study more, not less, and you will see God just get so much bigger in your life. Some of you have uh, read C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. In that story, Lucy, the, the, the young lady in the story, meets Aslan, the lion, who represents the symbol of Christ. And Aslan says to her, welcome, child. And her response is, Aslan, you're bigger. She hadn't seen him for a while. She says, wow, you're bigger than you were before. And he says to her, that's because you're older, little one. And she answered, not because you are bigger. He says, I am not. But every year as you grow, you will find me bigger. And as you grow and mature in Christ, you will indeed find him bigger in your life. Another great study help for you is being in a Sunday school class where you can study and you can go deeper in God's word with fellow believers. 
But finally, I would encourage you in this. Stand firm. Stand firm. The darkness, the sin-tainted world around you, and the minions of Satan who are at work in the spiritual realms will not sit idly by as you grow in Christ and as you seek to share him through your witness and testimony with other people. You will face opposition. You will face trials and struggles as you seek to grow in your walk with Christ and as you faithfully follow him. But remember that the darkness cannot and will not overcome the light. It didn't overcome the light of Jesus Christ, and when he lives within you, it will not overcome you. In 1 John chapter 4, yeah, again, the same author. I got this whole John thing going tonight. Uh, He writes and he tells believers to test the spirits that are prompting them and leading them to do things. He said, test them to make sure they are from God. And he says this, he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, referring to the evil, deceiving spirits. He says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So stand firm in Christ and rooted in his word.